Well, if you'll join me back in the book of Exodus in chapter 32, this is where we left off last time. At this point in our study in the book of Exodus, Moses has now finished receiving the instructions regarding the construction of the tabernacle, that portable worship system that God would be establishing among the congregation of Israel with its furnishings and different implements, the priesthood, the establishment of their ministry and the Levites. And at this point now, uh, Moses has, having received all those things, uh, it tells us at the end of chapter 31, that when the Lord had made an end of speaking with Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And, and at this point, Moses is now beginning to journey back down the mountain. Now, last time as we were together, we came as far as uh, verse uh, 14 in chapter 32 and just to sort of recap to bring us up to speed where we were at uh, we saw that as Moses was still there on top of the mountain he has not descended yet at this point that down at the bottom of the mountain it's almost as if you know God's eternal camera pans down to the bottom of the mountain now uh, back where the congregation of Israel was and remember Aaron and her had been left in charge. God had, uh, through Moses, in a sense, told him to delegate responsibility to them Why he went up on the mountain, has been with the Lord now almost 40 days in the presence of God, receiving instruction from the Lord for the people. Uh, and the camera sort of pans back down to the bottom of the mountain where the people are becoming impatient. They're becoming restless. Uh, in a sense, God is not doing what they wanted God to do in the time frame that they wanted God to do it. I know none of you here tonight can probably ever relate to that, right? Uh, that God would actually be delaying what you expect Him to be doing in your life longer than what you uh, anticipated or longer than what you would think. No doubt they were like, well, He said He was just going to go up there and have a chat with God. I mean, it's been over a month now. I mean, uh, how long can you really talk to the Lord? And, uh, and it tells us that the people becoming restless and in patient uh, saying that they saw Moses delayed coming down from the mountain remember they went to Aaron who had been left in charge and they said look as for this guy Moses uh, who brought us out of Egypt we don't know what in the world's happened to him so uh, you're the one that seems was left in charge so uh, why don't you make us some gods make us something that we can worship we want to uh, somehow be able to worship he hasn't come back with instructions from the god that he said delivered us out of egypt so uh, make us some gods to worship and aaron uh, acquiesced he accommodated the people's preferences and their ideas and their opinions and uh, really showed the weakness of his own spiritual leadership that he was more of a people pleaser than being concerned about what was the will of god or would please god he basically just accommodated their request remember he uh, asked them to bring them uh, to him the, their golden jewelry uh, and then he actually the Bible tells us uh, threw that into a smelting pot and verse 4 says that as they did that the people then made a molded calf and this was typical to Canaanite worship the, the people of the land that were around them so they were picking up ideas from the world around them and now incorporating them into their worship lives and they make this golden calf, no doubt molded a calf, and then overlaid it with gold. 
and and basically then said, okay, this is the God that brought us out of the land of Egypt. And in just this ludicrous way, again, after all the miracles they saw God do, the plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, bringing manna every day to feed them, the water coming from the rock, and all these miraculous things they saw of the evidence of the reality of God, and yet now the people make this golden calf as an idol to worship in place of God. And they begin to give burnt offerings and peace offerings. And it even says there in verse 6 that they sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. And and the idea very clearly there in the Hebrew language is there was a sensual uh, activity going on. Basically, there was a drunken party, we'll see. There was sensual dancing, nakedness. And again, many of the same ways these Canaanite people in their fertility rites, there would basically many times just be drunken orgy type activities that would take place as a part of their whole worship practices. So you have this lewd behavior. People in unrestrained ways are acting out of control. There's no restraint. But again, when you make a God in your own image, which is what they basically did, hey, we, we want God, but we're going to mold God in our image. We're going we're gonna to make God into our image in the way that we want him to be. And typically when you do that, then you live according to your own standards and your own rules and you make up what's acceptable and not acceptable. And the people begin to just indulge in this lewd, inappropriate behavior. And at this point, conversation switches back up to Moses and the Lord. And God says to Moses, uh, your people who you brought out of Egypt. It's like God says, look, that's it. I, I, that, at this point, I am done with them. And it's like, either you're a poop. He tries to push you like two parents. You know, your son. Do you know what your son did today? Not our son. What your son did today. And because they're misbehaving, he says, Moses, that's it. I've seen these people. They are a stiff-necked people. He says, therefore, leave me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. And I'm just going to start over with you and begin a new nation. And, and really, they had brought the the just judgment of God upon their lives. They had already broken the first two commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt make no graven image. They had righteously, in a sense, obligated God to judge them. And God would have been just to bring his wrath and his righteous punishment upon them. But as we said last week, Moses at this point, because he had a shepherd's heart and he was in tune with the heart of God, begins to intercede. And I personally, my own conviction, you're free to disagree, I really believe that God was the one who prompted the heart of Moses to intercede on behalf of the people for God's glory and his mercy and his judgment to be turned away from them because God's righteous and he needs a righteous basis not to judge his people and his love. He doesn't want to judge. God doesn't like to judge. But he needs a righteous basis because he's holy and just. So he prompts the heart of a servant puts that impulse on his heart by the Spirit, Moses begins this incredible intercession, Lord, pleading for his glory and pleading for mercy upon the people. And verse 14 says, Therefore God, in answer to Moses' intercession, relented, and he did not bring the wrath upon the people and destroy the entire population of Israel as he justly could have and really should have. It says the Lord relented from that harm in which he said he would do to his people. Now, verse 15, we pick it up. It says, and Moses turned, chapter 32, verse 15, Moses turned and went down from the mountain and the two tablets of the testimony were in his hand and the tablets were written on both sides, on the one side and on the other they were written. Now, the tablets, notice, were the work of God. 
And the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. Now, I love that description there. Here is a description of these two tablets of stone uh, where God, it says, by the finger of God had engraved his word. Most likely, probably at least the Ten Commandments were on this. But I love just how the, the scripture defines as Moses comes down the mountain with probably the Ten Commandments at least on those two tablets of stone that it tells us here in verse 16 that these were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God. And what a great foreshadowing of really of what all of the word of God is. This is the work of God. This is the writing of God. Certainly God may have used human instruments as his pens to be able to record what his word is and what his will is, but uh, be not deceived despite what you know the world may try and convince us of in their ignorance, and it's sheer ignorance, truth be told at the end of the day, to disacknowledge that this book is unlike any other book and that it is inspired and infallible and errant, and it's not like any other black and white set of pages of print on this planet, but it is the very living, inspired word of God. It doesn't contain uh, God's words. It is God's word. It is God's word. This is a work of God. God, by his spirit, holy men of God, were moved by the Holy Spirit to write and record what God wanted them to, to become a written record, the writing of God, uh, so that we would have the scriptures, both Old and New Testament, to be able to know the will of God and his heart and who he is and what his plan is for our life. And here Moses now comes down with these tablets and verse 17 says that when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. Now, remember, Joshua didn't go all the way up with Moses. Joshua is Moses' attendant. He's a servant. Remember, ultimately, Joshua will take over for Moses. Uh, so he's sort of like with Paul and Timothy, like a protege, a mentor in ministry, uh, 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 someone, excuse me, who's being mentored in ministry, uh, like Elijah had Elisha, who he raised up under him. And, and so Joshua, ultimately, to take over for Moses, to take over this role, is someone who in the interim, he's, he's an aide to Moses, he's by Moses' side. He's with Moses, he's around, he's seeing what Moses does and, and he's assisting and in a sense complimenting the things of the Lord. And Joshua went, it seems, the Bible indicates, part way up the mountain and it seems kind of weighted there. He wasn't down with the rest of the people because he wasn't participating in what happened down at the bottom of the mountain with the worship of the golden calf. It seems he kind of waited about at the halfway point why Moses then went up further and spent time with the Lord. So it would make sense as Moses is coming back down now he encounters Joshua first. And as he encounters Joshua first, it says that as they hear the noise of the people down in the camp shouting, Joshua says, Moses, this is the noise of war in the camp. Again, what is Joshua? He's a military guy, remember? He's a military general. So that's what military generals think. You know, they, this is a war. This is a battle. Their, their mind is always on the thing that uh, they're kind of geared and, and called to do. So he said, what? there must be an invasion or there must be a rally cry because they're about to go out and attack someone. And verse 18, Moses has a little bit of an inside track because uh, God's already informed him what's happening before he gets there. And he says, uh, Joshua, that is not the noise of the shout of victory nor is it the noise of the cry, the mourning of a great defeat from war, but that is the sound of singing. 
that I hear. In other words, Joshua, they're not crying because they lost the battle and they're not celebrating because they just won a battle. Contrary to what you may think or how that sounds, what you hear is a good old-fashioned party going on down there at the bottom of that mountain. And I know that's what's happening. Why? Because God revealed it to him. Because God spoke that to him. He didn't know it by observation because he hasn't gotten down there yet. He knew it because he was in the presence of God. And why he was in the presence of God, God revealed that to him. And what a wonderful thing, because you know what? When we spend time in the presence of God, God is not a God of partiality. And, and when we spend time in the presence of God, sometimes God may reveal things to us. You know, the Bible says the secret of the Lord is with those who fear him. Uh, the Bible tells us that one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, even in the New Testament, is the gift of the word of knowledge, which is basically a supernatural gift whereby a God of all knowledge who knows all things can deposit a a nugget of knowledge into my mind or into your mind as a believer to allow you to know something that you could not know otherwise. Something apart from study, apart from observation, apart from acquaintance, uh, and it makes very much sense. God knows all things. There's nothing God doesn't know. God knows what's happening in every single one of your lives in this room this evening. He knows what's happening in your life and your heart and mind even better than you do. You don't understand yourself half the time, do you? God knows everything. God knows everything that's happening. He's an all-knowing God. So it is not difficult for me to understand how an all-knowing God can at times, if he chooses to, for his purposes and reasons, and primarily for ministry reasons, impart some aspect of knowledge about a situation or individual into the mind of one of his children by the Spirit of God to reveal something to them that they may need to know for his purposes and his plans. Again, we see this happening in the book of Acts where in Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira, they walk in and, and, and Peter has had from the Lord revealed to him the hypocrisy in what they had already done and he basically calls them right on the carpet for the hypocrisy that they were living in in their lives. And God is able to do this. I think many times he does it to safeguard us or to just lead us in a way of intercession. It's not so that we can use it in a destructive, harmful way or, 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 or act somehow we should you know, prostitute the gift of God to make ourselves seem spiritual or, hey, I, I, I receive words of knowledge from the Lord. Right now God is telling me this about this. And, and go on TV and, and raise money with your telephone lines. No, this is a legitimate thing that God can do if it's for his purposes and reasons. It, he revealed this to Moses. So Joshua was probably like, wow, how, how do you know that? Well, the reason he knew it is because he was with God and God revealed it to him. And the wonderful thing is God's not a God of partiality. So uh, as you seek the Lord, as you're in the Lord's presence, sometimes, especially if it relates to a problematic situation or something harmful or destructive, God may reveal something to you. As a parent, he may reveal something to you that's going on in one of the hearts of your children. He may reveal something to you that's going on in a situation that is damaging and defiling and say, I'm revealing this to you so you'll pray and intercede and so that it would cease or that it would stop. And here Moses says, I know what this is. This is a lewd party, a celebration down there. In verse 19, so it was as soon as Moses came near the camp that he then saw the calf and the dancing. And again, the language clearly indicates this is lewd, provocative. Some translations even render some of these verses in the chapter 32 nakedness that there was actually inappropriate dancing going on, seductive 
uh, lewd things. So he sees this celebration around this golden calf and Moses' anger became hot. Why? Because it was righteous indignation. He had been in the presence of a holy God. Can you imagine what Moses saw for 39 days as he was in God's presence being supernaturally sustained hearing from God, God's revealing him things about the tabernacle, which remember were to be made exactly according to the command that he was told because they were representative, what? Of eternal things that exist somehow in some way representative in the eternal dimension. And that was why it was so critical that things be made exactly. So Moses has been seeing visions of heavenly things and perhaps you know angelic things and 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 been spending time in god's presence so he has the heart of the lord and when he comes down the mountain and he sees this dishonoring lewd vile brazen disrespectful behavior toward the god that he loves and represents and worships and to take it one level worse by a people who profess to follow him one thing when the world acts this way But these are supposed to be God's people. And when Moses sees this, his anger is hot, you know, and almost in the same way as we see Jesus at one time with the zeal of the Lord of hosts is consuming and he goes into the temple and he's turning over the tables of the money changers and driving out those who were selling in the temple and says, you've turned my father's house into a place of merchandise. This is supposed to be a house of prayer. And with sort of that same righteous indignation and that holy anger, Moses became angry and he cast the tablets out of his hands and he broke them at the foot of the mountain, again, symbolic of what they had done, that they had just violated and broken the very word of God. So in this symbolic way, he breaks the tablets in front of them to sort of dramatize the fact of how they have just broken the word of God and and that it was just a grievous, grievous thing that they were doing. And then verse 20, look at this. Moses took the calf which they had made and he burned it in the fire and he ground it to powder. Never a good thing if your God can be ground up uh, into powder. And then he scattered it on the water, all the shavings and the dust of it, and he made the children of Israel drink it. And it's never a good thing when you can drink your God. But a lot of Americans do that to their own destruction. But here he takes this golden calf and he just I mean he doesn't just go up to it and kick that thing over you know and just just in his anger or or knock the head off I mean he takes this thing and he just obliterates it I mean he thoroughly just obliterates it breaks it down burns it grinds it throws it into the water and then makes them drink it no doubt as an indication of of kind of the again the bitterness of their own sin to realize what they had done and what's he doing again he's just he's eliminating every possible chance that they could go back to the same thing he just utterly obliterates this thing that had become an idolatrous thing in their life and you know I look at that man and I think to myself when 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 it's time to do away with sin and wrongdoing, I think there is a time to be very passionate about that. And, and if something has become an idol in our life or in a loved one's life and there is a need to eradicate that, then we should eradicate it and eradicate it seriously so there ain't no chance. There was no way they were going to pick up the pieces and try and crazy glue them back together there at the bottom of Mount Horeb and say, hey, we, we, we like to... There was no way they were returning to this. It was going to be very difficult 
for them to go back to that. And Moses wanted to make sure of that because this was so destructive. Verse 21, Moses said to Aaron now, because he was supposed to be in leadership and to whom much is given, much is required. And here Aaron was, in a sense, way more guilty and responsible. So Moses, what does the first thing he do? He confronts Aaron. He doesn't confront the people first. His first line of business, because it was God's first line of chain and command, is he goes directly to who is in leadership. Because it was his responsibility to have oversight. It was his responsibility to facilitate honoring God and, and, and restraining the people from wrongdoing and sin. So he says to Aaron, what did this people do to you? Did they tie you up or something, Aaron? What did, they, what did these people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? Again, you, you're accountable for this, Aaron. These are the people that you were called to shepherd and to oversee in my absence. God gave you accountability and responsibility for them. And he says, this is a great sin and you have brought this great sin upon them. At the end of the day, Moses was rebuking him saying, look, you're responsible for this. You're accountable because you have precipitated and permitted this tremendous sin and stumbling block before all these people. You know, I, I think it would be a healthy thing many a times if more spiritual leaders recognize the reality of the tremendous accountability that God holds before us for the people that we would shepherd and we would lead spiritually. There would be more of a serious consideration of that. That God would raise up more shepherd-hearted people like a Moses who, 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 who are, in a sense, concerned about what is best for the flock and what is best to honor God. And how those things always work together. And here Moses strongly is rebuking Aaron. What did they do to you that you've brought such a great sin upon them? Now look at Aaron's response. He says, do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people. He says, they are set on evil. Again, what's he do right away? He blame shifts. Nothing new under the sun, is there? That's as old as the Garden of Eden. God, it was... The woman that you gave me. The woman that, by the way, God, you gave me. So it was her fault and your fault. And, and he's blame shifting. And Aaron says, yeah, I know this was a, a great sin. But don't be angry. You know these people and they're bent towards evil. In essence, what he's doing is he's saying, well, look, the, yeah, the, the reason I did this though is because of what they did. It's because of them. That's why I'm this way. It's because of what they did to me, that's why I made this decision or behaved that way. And that's exactly the way, unfortunately, many people respond to sin when they're confronted with it in their own lives. The reason why they sin or they misbehave or they act inappropriately is always because of what somebody else has done to them. Well, it's because this was done to me or it's because they did that to me, that's why I act like this. And rather than take personal responsibility or accountability as we all should before God, instead, we always push the victim default button and we blame shift. Yes, I did this wrong, but it's only because what they did to me or the influence that, and, and they, they caused me to act like this. They prompted me to do this. And this is what Aaron is doing here. He says, you know the people, they're, they're prone towards evil. For they said to me, verse 23, it just digresses from here. Make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And I said to them, well, whoever has any gold, let him break it off. 
So they gave the gold to me, and I cast it into the fire, and this calf came out. <laughs> you know, I, I look at that, and I think, did he really say that with a straight face? Did he with a straight face really say, well, they just, yeah, they gave the gold to me, and, and I threw it in the fire, and, and I thought it would just all melt, but instead, this calf jumped out. I mean, was he looking down? Yeah, well, you know, and then kind of this, or was he able to actually look? I mean, talk about a lame excuse. A lame excuse for sin. But how many times as people do we make lame excuses for our sin? Quite honestly, almost probably about as lame as that sometimes. I mean, it's quite unfortunate if we're not blame shifting why we sinned on someone else as the reason that caused it, if somehow it's not our responsibility, then typically, we're, if we're not doing both, then we're defaulting in this way to this mechanism where we're just giving the most lame excuses for why we do what's wrong, which is what we all do on occasion. And here, Aaron, well, it was the people, they, they, they and, and I just, I didn't know what to do, and, 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 and then I just, honestly, I threw the gold in, and this, this calf came out. And keep in mind, this is who God picked to be the high priest? Oi, McVeigh. This is the high priest of Israel. This is the first high priest of Israel. This is a really incredible reminder that any opportunity any of us ever have to minister for the Lord or be used by the Lord is nothing other than a sheer act of the grace of God. Do not ever, ever begin to think that if God is using you somehow or working through your life or giving you a chance to serve the Lord that it has anything to do with the fact that somehow uh, it's because you're so spiritual or because you've arrived to some point, or, or because you ha have just somehow earned or achieved it. Listen, it is nothing other than the grace of God. Because we are just as flawed, each one of us, as everyone else around us. Paul, who was used probably more incredibly by the Lord, uh, second only none to Jesus himself when he walked in a body of flesh, said, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And here we see Aaron in this situation being confronted and just the testimony that Aaron was used by God's grace and his grace alone. Well, when Moses saw that the people, it says, were unrestrained, the new king or the King James there, the old King James actually says were naked. The language is translated there. The idea is, is unrestrained. The indication is that they were out of control still. There was no interest in doing what was right. The, Moses had broken these tablets. The idea is, you know, he's trying to call them, hey, stop this. Put an end to this. And he's shining the floodlight on their error and their lewd behavior and their brazen, ungodly activity at the bottom of this mountain. He's destroyed this golden calf. I mean, it was very clear that God was not pleased with what they're doing. The tablets have been broken. The golden calf has been obliterated and destroyed. Aaron's been rebuked. And yet there were some people still that were so brazen, so bent on their desire to just indulge their flesh and live out of control, they were just unrestrained, still parading and dancing around in their drunkenness and their lewd behavior. They were not repentant, the idea is here. These were individuals who just were choosing not to be repentant. It says, when Moses saw those who were not restrained, for Aaron had not restrained them, to their shame among their enemies, they were dishonoring Yahweh God in that area among the onlookers. Then Moses stood at the entrance of the camp and said, whoever is on Yahweh's side, 
come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. So at this point, the Levi, uh, tribe of Levi demonstrate why uh, God would be able to use them because in this moment, in a critical hour, they make a hard choice to say, you know what? Doing what is right and righteous is where we will choose to take our stand. It does not matter what anyone else around us is doing. And no wonder we begin to see why God could use them in a unique way as the ministers among the people of Israel. It says, none other than the tribe of Levi gather together. They rally behind Moses and say, hey, we will stand on the Lord's side. He puts out a call. Who, who's willing to choose to forsake this wrong behavior and to stand on the side of the Lord. And we see occasions like this in the Bible where like with Elijah, with the prophets of Baal and, and Elijah there says to the people, he says, how long will you falter between two opinions? If Yahweh is Lord, then serve him. And, and if not, then, then go the other direction and calling the people to a choice, to a commitment, to a decision. And here Moses is doing this and they don't know what's entailed with it other than that there's this out-of-control, brazen sinfulness among the people, among a certain select group, clearly. And it says, Whoever's on the Lord's side come to me, the sons of Levi gather themselves to him. And he said, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let every man put his sword on his side and go in and out from the entrance throughout the camp and let every man kill, notice, his brother, every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Now that's a very small population group if you consider the fact there were probably upwards of 2 million people and maybe therefore around six, 700,000 men at least. But no doubt this is a reference not to obliterating the entire camp, but to those who we read up in the prior verses were still unrestrained in their sinfulness and had no desire to repent, had no interest in turning away from their evil or stopping their ungodly activities. And it's this group of about 3,000 or so that it says the sons of Levi who rallied to Moses' side are told to take their swords and basically to execute them, to put them to death. Because the law of God honestly required that they be put to death because they were violating God's law. And so they're executed, they are put away so that that leaven would not further leaven the rest of the congregation. They are actually executed and it says that day about 3,000 men fell. Now take note of that. You might want to underline in your Bible or make a little uh, note there by verse 28, particularly that 3,000 died. At the giving of the law... When the law was given, 3,000 souls died on that day because they violated the law because the law can't give life. The law always brings death. Yet the Bible shows us in the book of Acts chapter 2 that when the Pentecost experience happened and the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the church, it tells us then on that day that 3,000 souls were saved. Certainly no coincidence there. The law can't give life. The law always brings death. But grace and truth and the work of the Holy Spirit brings life. And in this day, when the law was given, 3,000 souls died as a result. When the Spirit of God's poured out upon the church, 3,000 souls are saved and life is given. What a, a beautiful redemption of God's work. Verse 29, and Moses said then, I believe this is to the Levites still here, consecrate yourselves today to the Lord. 
that he may bestow on you a blessing this day for every man has opposed his son and his brother. And again, here calling them to set themselves apart. I believe this is sort of, in a sense, uh, sanctifying them, consecrating them for their ministry, reminding them that God was well pleased as hard as it was for them to take that stand that they actually... Some of them were having to put to death their own family members, their own brothers in their community that they were having to choose to love and honor God more than the very people who were closest to them. That was a tough thing. You know, it reminds me of what Jesus ultimately says in the New Testament when he says, if anyone loves you know, mother or father or brother or sister or any family member more than me, he's not worthy of me. That sometimes if we are called to come to that place and forced to come to a place of a decision of will we honor and please our family members, our relatives, those closest to us, or will we choose to honor and please the Lord first, that we would have the courage to say, you know what, my first foremost allegiance is to Jesus. It's to my Lord. It's to honor him. And if that means that my, enemy, that my family becomes my enemy, if that means my family becomes displeased with me, if it, whatever it requires, I would be willing to stand on the Lord's side and be by his side. And again, just so interesting too that they use the sword to execute people. Again, the sword in the Bible is often a picture of the word of God. And you know what? If you're going to choose to stand on the Lord's side, make sure that you check the sword of the spirit, the word of God, that you're doing it for a good reason and not just because you got a really strong conviction about something. Don't be foolish. If there's a biblical reason why you should say, you know, look, I can't do that. Or I can't endorse that. Or I can't agree with that. Or I'm going to live this way. And I know you may not understand that. Look, make sure. You know, before you start just lopping people's heads off and executing and causing a bunch of blood in your family. Remember, the, the last recorded miracle we have that Jesus did in the Gospels is healing the ear of that servant, Malchus, remember? Where Peter, thinking that he needed to help the Lord, remember, he yanks out his sword and he whips it trying to help Jesus out and he cuts off the ear and Jesus says, Peter, put away your sword. And he takes and he, puts, he miraculously puts that ear back on that guy's head. And I just find it interesting. The last recorded miracle we have of Jesus is him cleaning up a mess a bloody mess because one of his servants thought that he should take and whip around his sword to the hurt and detriment of someone else to try and represent and protect Jesus and his cause. And Jesus says, ah, Peter, big mess, big mess. And I think a lot of times as Christians, we have to be careful. Is there a time to take a stand for the Lord? Yes. But, but make sure you're wise in the way that you approach that. Uh, don't just be flippant and, uh, again, we, we're not... <laughs> We are not like in this day to you know, carry out the judgment of God. Well, well there Moses, they, they executed 3,000 people. So after I am, I'm the Lord's executioner. So I'm going to just start executing everybody in my family who's not living. Be careful. Be careful. I don't think that's our calling or our prerogative. That's the Lord's business. And, and we just need to be cautious in regards to that. But verse 30 says, It came to pass then on the next day, Moses said to the people, You have committed, notice, a great Sin. He didn't downsize what they had done wrong. So now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps, he says, I can make atonement for you. The idea is, perhaps I can make atonement, he says, for your sins. So Moses returned to the Lord 
and said, oh, these people have committed a great sin. What does he do? He goes back to interceding again. He sees the great sin and offense that they committed against God. He confronts them for their sin, but then in compassion and concern for them, he says, I've got to intercede. I've got to go talk to God about this. We've offended God. We've caused an affront to God because of what we've done. And he says, wait here. I'm going to see if I can atone for your sin. He says, Lord, these people have committed a great sin. They've made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin... And then you notice there's a dash there. There should be in your Bible. Because the Hebrew there indicates there's a pause. I don't know how long the pause was. He says, Lord, if you will forgive their sin. And then it's as if he just sits and waits before God because he, he doesn't know what the will of God is. He doesn't know what God's going to do. Sin is sin. There's a great sin before a holy God. So he says, Lord, if you'll forgive their sin. A pause. But if not... I pray, blot me out of your book, which you have written. Now, Moses here makes an incredible statement to the Lord. It shows you again the incredible sacrificial heart of this guy and his love for the people. That he says, Lord, if you will forgive their sin, if somehow I can make some form of atonement for their sin. He says, if not, Lord, if you won't forgive them, then Lord, even if you want, blot me out of your book. Now, scholars debate here whether or not he's referring to a book of life that is just a record of all the lives of people who have existed on the earth, physical life, or whether this is a reference, the idea of what we read later on in the New Testament of uh, the Lamb's book of life, or maybe a record of those who will receive and, and experience eternal life. And you know what? Honestly, scholars can debate over that. I'm not a scholar, so I wouldn't even enter into a debate like that anyway. I think the principle is what we don't want to miss is that Moses was offering himself in a sacrificial way saying, Lord, even if it's necessary, I would sacrifice my life if somehow that would make atonement for them. Lord, I would give up my life in a sense. Now, what a beautiful picture that is, of course, of Jesus because ultimately that is how our forgiveness would come. Jesus would offer his life in place of ours. Now, take notice in verse 33, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. In other words, Moses, in essence, what he's saying there is no. I, I, I can't accept your life as an atonement for the sins of other people. Why? Because Moses was a sinner like all the other people. It was going to require a sinless, holy Savior. Ultimately, God would accept the life of Jesus as an atonement for our sins, but he couldn't accept the life of Moses. So he says, Moses, no, I, I refuse to accept it. Whoever has sinned, I will blot him out of my book. And again, as we look at this, it's the heart behind this, I think, that God wants us to see. There's something going on in this intercession of Moses. It reminds us of even Paul the Apostle in the book of Romans chapter 9. It tells us this. Paul said, I tell you the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bearing witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. The picture there is Paul was so burdened, so burdened, that this people, his own people Israel, would get saved and come to know to Jesus, that though Paul knew theologically, it, it wasn't possible theologically, but his heart, his passion, his intercession, he said, Lord, I want to see them saved so bad, I would be willing to be accursed and be damned eternally 
if they could be saved. Now, that's a pretty impressive heart condition. I can't say that I'm not spiritual. Far from that. <laughs> Far from that. But that's a burden for people. That's a love for people. And Moses here, no doubt, reflective of, of the heart of Jesus who ultimately would give his life as an atonement, he would allow himself to be stricken and to be put to death and to lose his life so in a sense, our names could be inserted or not erased or blotted from God's book so that we could have eternal life. But again, Moses going through this process, he's interceding for forgiveness and atonement. And the Lord says, verse 34, now therefore go, lead the people to the place which I have spoken. He says to you, behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit punishment, I will visit punishment upon them for their sins. So the Lord plagued the people. He didn't destroy them. He plagued the people because of what they did with the calf in which Aaron made. So as a result of Moses' intercession, what does God do? God does two things. First of all, in a sense, he puts a measure of mercy into his judgment whereby he plagues the people, but he doesn't kill and destroy the people as he righteously could have. He, he, he honors the intercession of Moses and he actually forestalls the judgment of God that could come upon them. He says, Moses, I can't receive your life as atonement for their sin. But he says, nevertheless, in the day when I do visit punishment, I will deal with them. But when I do visit punishment, he's putting off the judgment of God as the result of what? Again, intercession. I think we need to pay attention what's happening there. The judgment of God was looming over the nation of Israel. But again, one man interceded before God and as a result of that God put a measure of mercy into the situation the people still reaped a consequence for their sin but they didn't reap what they truly deserved for their sin and God also forestalled his judgment God forestalled his judgment and for you and I I think God is looking the Bible tells us that God is looking for intercessors in Ezekiel it tells us that God is looking for someone to stand in the gap to intercede. It tells us that the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro throughout the whole earth looking for a man to show himself strong on his behalf. Again, God, God's looking for an individual, an intercessor, one person, one man, one woman who intercedes and pleads with God standing in the gap recognizing, Lord, we are guilty. Lord, we're guilty. Have mercy on us. Please, Lord, forestall your judgment. Lord, have mercy on us in your grace and kindness. And again, the confidence, and even to think in verse 34 that God still says to Moses, lead the people to the place of which I've spoken to you. And my angel will go with you. Now, I want you to take in mind there how incredibly gracious that is of God. Keep in mind, God could have said, look, Moses, all right, I'm, I won't kill the people. All right, I'll be merciful. I won't kill them. I won't punish them and give them according to what their sins deserve. But that whole promised land thing, forget about that. There's no way. They're not getting the promised land anymore. A land flowing with milk and honey where they can be blessed and experience the goodness of God. Listen, I'll withhold the judgment of God, but they, they have far pushed the boundaries. The grace, the promises, the kindness, the goodness that I had planned for them, no way, it's, it's done. But God doesn't do that. God still honors his promise. He says, Moses, take them into the land. They failed. They failed. 
but you know what? I'm a gracious God. Take them into the land. And, and I'll send my angel to escort you into that land. And man, what an, to forestall his judgment is one thing. But to still honor all his promises and his blessings and his kindness and his goodness and still fulfill his plans and purposes. It tells us in the book of Romans regarding the nation of Israel that, that the gifts and the call of God are irrevocable. See, this is why God still has a plan for Israel. This is why it is absolute diabolical, this anti-Semitic attitude that God has done with the nation of Israel, nationally as a people, is utter, unbiblical, and, and, and really diabolical teaching. Because God has a plan for his people. God honors his promises. And God will fulfill them. And, and, and here, even to the, God shows already the demonstration. Listen, Yes, they failed, but I will still honor my promises. The Bible tells us that even when we are faithless, God remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. And God still fulfills his promises. He says, I, I swore these things to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and therefore I, I am still going to fulfill these things. Look at the first few verses of chapter 33. Maybe we'll just kind of tie this together with where we're at. We're almost out of time. It says, the Lord then said to Moses, depart and go up from here. You and your people whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt to the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, saying to your descendants, I will give it. God gave the land to the Jews, to the nation of Israel. Here he's telling Moses as he'll go. And he says, and I will send my angel before you and I'll drive out the Canaanites, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey but then God says, for I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you. The idea is, your translation say, because I might have to destroy you, God is saying, on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Now, verse 3 will transition, and, and for sake of time, I don't, I don't want to push through what's there. It will transition into all of what chapter 33 is about regarding the incredible importance of the presence of God and the presence of God being with his people to the point where Moses will say, look, Lord, uh, I don't care about any progress. If we make progress without you, that's worthless. So, Lord, if you're not going to be with us and your presence is not with us, that's all that matters. And here, God, in a sense, is saying, listen, I'll send my angel to go with you. I'll still let you go in and, and I'll make sure you get a divine escort and I'll help you and I'll assist you. But he says, I don't know if I can go with you because if another one of these golden calf things happened again, I'm a holy God. And I, I, I might have to destroy and consume the people if they do something. So in a sense here, I, and I think God's somewhat almost testing and probing the heart of Moses. And it tells us in verse 4, when the people heard this, they begin to grieve and mourn over this bad news. They realize that God is distancing himself from them because of their sin. And it brings a measure of repentance in their hearts. And it starts to bring a little measure, a small measure of revival among the congregation. Those are the things we'll transition to next week. But again, as we look at these first few verses, tying together with the last verses, again, notice that despite their failure, God is still saying, take them into the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to your descendants that I will get. And I will send my angel and they'll drive out their enemies before you. And again, seeing the incredible, incredible grace of God there. That God is so merciful. The Bible tells us where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. 
And listen, maybe for you tonight, again, I don't know where you're at in your walk with the Lord or where you're at in your life, but if you're anything like me, there are times in your life where you look back on some failure or mistake or grievous thing you did before you came to Christ or some failure or mistake you've made since you've come to Christ, whether it was something you did before you got saved or maybe something you even did in a season after you were saved. And you think, well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I believe the blood of Jesus has forgiven me and I'm so glad I'm still going to heaven. And I know I'm forgiven. I know I'm forgiven and I know I'm going to heaven. But some of those promises God had for me, there's no way now. There's no way now. I mean, I offended God too much. I transgressed and dishonored. And, you know, I, mean, I, I can accept His forgiveness. I can accept His love. I'm thankful that He is going to let me still go into eternal life. But me going in to all that God could have done for my life, I trashed that. I ruined that. How do you know that? And what audacity do you have to pronounce judgment upon yourself? You're not God. If God wants to be gracious, God can be gracious. And sometimes God is gracious for His glory. So here you are looking at your mistake. Well, because I did this or I married that person or I made this mistake or I, you know, I fell back into this sin or habit or, and, and, and I know it was wrong and so I'm going to have to just live sort of a B-class Christian life and that, you know, it's just the way it's going to be. Listen, when Moses says in the end of this next chapter, Lord, I want to see your glory. I want to see your glory. Look what God says, verse 19, when Moses says, Lord, show me your glory, he says, I will make all of my goodness pass before you and proclaim the name of the Lord, for I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. God says, you want to see my glory? This is my glory. My goodness. That I'm a God of incredible goodness. And that I can be gracious to whoever I want to be gracious even people who don't think they deserve my graciousness. And I can be compassionate to people who need compassion because they failed. And listen, this evening, you know what? If God wants to be good to you, just accept it by faith. If God wants to be gracious to you, just accept it by faith. If God wants to be compassionate and still honor all his promises in your life, he can still do that. It's for his glory. We never deserved anything anyway. It's all his goodness and all his graciousness. And let's not rob him of his glory, but instead appreciate and celebrate his goodness and how it is his great glory. Let's